0: to Wadcast. I'm Charlene Gianetti, editor of Woman Around Town. Lin-Manuel Miranda's smash hit musical Hamilton has created a groundswell of interest in Alexander Hamilton, one of our founding fathers and the first secretary of the treasury. There have been games, sketchbooks, coloring books, calendars, even Alexander Hamilton's Guide to Life. Food writer and cooking coach Laura Kuhlman explored another angle cooking, eating, and entertaining in Hamilton's world. What was it like to dine with this revolutionary war hero who helped interpret the Constitution and founded our nation's financial system? Laura is the perfect person to find out. At her blog, Mother Would Know, Laura encourages readers to become confident and creative home cooks. Her articles have appeared in such publications as The Washington Post, USA Today, and The Huffington Post. Laura has done Hamilton-related podcasts and programs for a variety of audiences and groups, including the National Press Club and Tudor Place, a national historic landmark. I'm excited to talk with Laura today and possibly pick up some ideas for my next dinner party. Welcome, Laura. Thanks so much for being with us here today.
1: Delightful and glad to be with you, Charlene.
0: Thanks. So, have you seen Hamilton? And if so, what did you think?
1: I have not seen Hamilton. And in fact, my daughter was so appalled that I had purposely kept myself unaware that once the book was written and published, she sent me to music via iTunes. So I have been listening to
0: it. And it will be here in, of course, it's still on Broadway, and it's uh, going to be here for a short run in D.C., so maybe you'll get a chance to see it then.
1: I actually do have tickets for August, and I'm very excited.
0: Wonderful. So why did you want to write a book focusing on Hamilton and food? I mean, it doesn't seem like an obvious topic for a book connecting Hamilton with food
1: actually had the idea that they wanted to do what they were just calling a Hamilton cookbook but didn't have, they only had the title and no concept and someone who works for the publisher knew me and asked me if I'd be interested in doing it and I said I would if they would give me the freedom to let me do it my way and they agreed and I was off and running.
0: Did you have to get permission from anyone connected with the musical to go ahead and do the book?
1: No, in fact, um, you know, the the cookbook has nothing to do with the musical. I mean, that is, um, both Lin-Manuel Miranda and I have read Ron Sherdo's book, and so I guess we can say we have a common inspiration uh, and certainly uh, the publisher knew that, you know, Hamilton, the, the musical was around, um, but I really wrote uh, without thinking about the musical. And in fact, I've seen a couple of things through the songs where I say, oh, it's not exactly historically accurate.
0: Interesting. So,
1: you know, I'm more into the history and the connection to food and, you know, I look forward to seeing what happens when it's a drama and a musical.
0: So would you categorize Hamilton as a foodie?
1: Not in the modern sense of the word. Um, You know, he did seem to enjoy eating. But uh, it's very doubtful. He didn't write much about food, and he wrote a lot. So the fact that he didn't write about food is kind of notable.
0: And and I'm assuming that he didn't cook. I'm assuming he didn't get into the kitchen um, and cook his own food.
1: That's right. I mean, men of his stature did not spend time cooking. Uh, In fact, even men like Thomas Jefferson, who Jefferson himself actually did write recipes, but he used others to do the cooking. And in Jefferson's case, he actually had a slave, who, or he had several slaves who did his cooking.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, Hamilton, there is some question as to who did the, the cooking for the Hamilton family, because Hamilton himself, although uh, his wife came from a wealthy family and they lived a, the life of, you know, He was an important uh, founding father, uh, an esteemed military leader. Uh, They didn't have a lot of money. He didn't spend a lot of time in the private sector. He was a lawyer. Uh, So it's not clear how many servants they had. Um, And typically a wife like his wife would be supervising and not cooking even herself. Um, But it is possible that uh, Eliza did some cooking, uh, although she... uh, we think, you know, she certainly had servants. They may even have slave, have had slaves doing some cooking.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, Hamilton grew up in the West Indies. How did that culture influence what foods he enjoyed?
1: Well, we know that he grew up quite poor, um, and we don't know his food preferences for sure. We don't really know what he ate there but it's quite likely that he enjoyed spices because West Indian food is is well spiced. His wife was of Dutch ancestry, so it's quite possible that he had uh, quite a varied cuisine in his house. Uh, That is, there would be the Dutch influence, we're certain of that, um, because we know what her family ate. And uh, so, you know, it's quite possible that he brought the West Indian influence, which would have been spices and stews.
0: Mm-hmm. So we uh, don't know. I mean, he obviously wasn't posting his favorite foods on Instagram, so we don't know <laughs> what his favorite foods were, correct? Well, we do
1: know two things that he really did love. One thing was wine, and we know that because when he did get a little bit of money, one of the things he invested in were very beautiful wine glasses ah. for his home. We also know that he loved ice cream. And we know that both because there's uh, evidence that he and Eliza actually introduced George and Martha Washington to ice cream, which is kind of a fun fact, and there was a very important dinner historically that Hamilton attended, which was Jefferson, who had his own slave who was a gourmet chef, prepare a dinner for Jefferson, Madison, and Hamilton. And they sat together through a multi-course meal and they talked and made in fact some compromises which are very important politically. Uh, The one that I am most uh, attuned to is that Hamilton uh, wanted the states to uh, be able to give their debt to the federal government. In other words, the federal government would assume the debt of the states after the Revolutionary War and uh, during that difficult time for states. And in return, uh, Jefferson and Madison agreed to that, but they wanted the capital of the U.S. to be in the South. Mm. And so Washington, D.C. is the capital for that reason, from that dinner. And at that dinner... I'll circle back to the food. The dessert was something that Hamilton wrote about, even though he hardly ever wrote about food. He loved what Jefferson's uh, gourmet chef prepared, which was ice cream in a pastry shell. Hmm. We might call that today, you know, a profiterole or baked Alaska. Mm-hmm. And so he thought that was just spectacular.
0: <laughs> That's interesting. So, uh, Laura, how did you research the recipes that you included in the book?
1: I did all of my the research on the recipes through the Library of Congress in Washington. And even if you're not in Washington, they have an incredible collection of digitized old cookbooks and the 18th century cookbooks which are the ones I used but they have ones that go back even hundreds of years before that Mm. and it's really quite incredible I mean you can literally do what I did which was to sit at my kitchen table at midnight and look at an 18th century recipe
0: wow that's fascinating um can you describe a typical Hamilton dinner party? Uh, what they would serve their guests aside from the ice cream and the in the pastry? I mean, what were some of the dishes that uh, dinner guests would expect to be served?
1: Well, I actually did provide a dinner menu in the book, and one of the things that's quite notable is that dinner parties were very um, elaborate. They were multi-course, and there were a lot of rules about what dishes would be in each course, and even where they would be placed on the table. Hmm. Um, And, you know, for those of us who who do give dinner parties these days, we're lucky if we can make a main course, a nice salad, a few vegetables. These people really had, they were serving meat and fish and poultry all at the same meal. Hmm. Interesting. when they did sweets at the end, they didn't just serve one dessert. They served multiple desserts. They had a dessert table, hmm. so it was quite interesting. Wine changed with each course, um, and although they did have salad, the salads—I have one in my book called Gundi. and it's very elaborate. You know, it's not a simple <laughs> throw some lettuce with you know a couple of cherry tomatoes.
0: I mean was this a way of I mean I don't want to use the term showing off but uh, you know to impress dinner guests with all of these courses and so many different kinds of foods
1: I'm not sure I would call it impressing people but it was it was because they really had a lot of rules they had many rules about you know where people sat, and for example, it was only uh, very recently when Hamil- the Hamiltons would have been giving parties that men and women would sit together. Hmm. That was not the way parties typically had happened before then. And so they had lots of rules, and if you read their cookbooks, uh, they have at the back, they have many um, suggested menus and they also have lots of rules about what you can serve when and you know these are things that i mean you can't even imagine a cookbook these days dictating what you must do everything is sort of do it however you want
0: Uh, so where did those rules come from i mean
1: well they changed but they were i mean the Hamilton and, and his peer group were very much into dining in the continental style, so
0: they would have been following the fashions in Britain and France. I see. Okay. And,
1: of course, the French Revolution didn't happen until after the American Revolution, so, you know, they were they were the French court was even more filled
0: with rules than the Americans and the British. Sure, of course. Now, most cooking, uh, I assume, was done, you know— in a fireplace on the hearth. So how did that affect what foods could be prepared and served? Well, it meant that it was a very difficult
1: uh, minuet of of moving pots around. Um, As you can imagine, it's not like cooking in an oven. And it's not like cooking on a stove top. You can't keep the heat constant. You don't really know when the food is done. And you can't read a recipe. I mean, if you look at the old recipes and then you look at my adaptations, one of the things that that I realized right off the bat was you never get a temperature Mm. because they didn't know what the temperature was.
0: Mm -hmm. And and
1: so cooking on a hearth, I haven't done it, but it seems really difficult.
0: And it must have been very hot and uncomfortable for the servants or the slaves who were preparing all that food. And dangerous, yeah, one prob- might say. Probably, uh, you
1: know, injuries. It would be uncomfortable. Sure. I mean, b- imagine the back injuries yeah. and, uh, you know, the fires that if you sweep your skirt a little too close to mm. the flame, or even the embers, you know.
0: And how did food storage back then affect uh, what foods could be served?
1: Well, certainly refrigeration was a luxury. Uh, they did have refrigeration through ice houses. But that was a very difficult thing to have in the city. And the Hamiltons only lived in the cities. In fact, when Hamilton came to the U.S., he lived in basically just the Mid-Atlantic in New York City and in Philadelphia. And only during the Revolutionary War did he travel with troops. Um, but, you know, they would eat a lot of things like root vegetables, which are easier to store. Uh, meat spoiled very easily, mm. uh, and they would cover up the smells of meat that wasn't quite <laughs> quite in its prime with spices. So if you look at the recipes, you know, you'll see lots of spices in, in stews and meat mm. uh, where we wouldn't necessarily use it. Uh, they didn't use a lot of dairy because dairy, of course, doesn't keep well without refrigeration.
0: Would you say that the diet they followed was a healthy diet?
1: Well, uh, you know, certainly they were very active people. They ate a lot of fruits and vegetables. They had some odd ideas. I mean, up until not too long, you know, during Hamilton's lifetime, potatoes and tomatoes were actually considered both poisonous, and they weren't eaten. They didn't eat them.
0: Mm. Yeah, I remember reading that about potatoes in your book. I found that a little bit shocking
1: actually realized that there was a good reason they thought tomatoes were poisonous. It, in fact, wasn't the tomato. But people had been eating tomatoes on dishes that were made with lead. And the lead was actually leaching off of the plates.
0: Ah, so it wasn't the tomatoes, it was the lead. No, but
1: they didn't have any way of understanding why people were getting sick.
0: Right. I mean, was food poisoning a factor back then? It must have been in Um, some cases. It's certainly, you know, there are certainly things that we would consider to be food poisoning
1: that they wouldn't have had any way of knowing was that. Mm -hmm. You know, and once people got sick, they weren't, in in many cases, able to diagnose what the problem was.
0: What are some of the things, uh, you know, aside from potatoes and tomatoes, that we enjoy today that were avoided in Hamilton's time? I mean, did they eat shellfish, for instance?
1: they did in fact eat shellfish in fact oysters were very common Hmm. and they had so many oysters then that they used to have all you can eat oyster houses (laughs) which these days oysters are very expensive and you can't imagine that Um, they they would eat uh, fruits and vegetables, certainly, but they couldn't get fresh fruits and vegetables that were out of season or that grow out only elsewhere. Mm-hmm. So, for example, uh, you know, they didn't know about kiwi. They didn't get pineapples. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but one of the things that to me was so interesting was the extent to which they would eat things that we don't eat anymore. Like? Like, well, I joked when I when I put together the recipes. I said, I'm not doing any pigeons, eels, Ooh. or turtles.
0: Mm. But they do and, eat, you know, eat those in other parts of the world. And actually, eels, uh, Italians uh, use that all the time in dishes.
1: Sure, and, and Asians certainly eat eels. The other thing that they did that we, is maybe coming back into fashion food-wise, but hasn't been really, uh, you know, in fashion in the United States is that they would eat the entire animal so you know I mean I remember my grandmother you know and head cheese and things like that but
0: mm-hmm. I mean
1: you know well, the idea of calves feet, pigs feet, we don't eat those
0: yeah. but you know
1: that is something that if you're eating an entire animal you find a way to use everything from the hoof to the head
0: right absolutely so uh Laura, when you were doing this research from the Library of Congress with the cookbooks, uh, was there something that might be called the joy of cooking during Hamilton's time?
1: I would say there was one cookbook that really strikes me as kind of that equivalent, um, which is there's a book, and I do use a couple of recipes from it, Hannah Glass, who wrote The Art of Cookery Made Plain and Easy. Uh, And that was certainly during Hamilton's time, because the first edition was in 1747. And there were, in fact, 20 editions of that book. Mm. Um, There's another book, the first American cookbook, came out while Hamilton was alive. It was by a woman named Amelia Simmons, and it's called American Cookery. Mm -hmm. Um, But it didn't come out until 1796. And Hamilton actually died in 1804, so, you know, it wasn't really around.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. When you adapted the recipes, uh, what were the most frequent changes you had to make?
1: Well, when I adapted the recipes, certainly they didn't have any oven temperatures. They didn't have any timing. They'd say things like, cook till done. When, you know, what's done? So I had to figure all those things out for myself. And then they use spices a lot to cover up bad smells, which we don't do. We only use spices to enhance flavors. So I had to kind of figure out what amount of spices and which spices would really taste good to our modern palate.
0: Mm-hmm. So it was a little bit challenging, in other words. It wasn't just like lifting the recipe from the uh, old-fashioned cookbook and... Reprinting it, you really had to do some uh, rejiggering to make sure modern present day cook could replicate what uh, was done in Hamilton's time. Right. So, uh, have you prepared most of the dishes in the cookbook?
1: I've prepared every one, and my husband had to eat every last one, which (laughs) he pretty much loved all the time. I think there might have been one dish that he wouldn't necessarily want to eat again, but uh, some nights he would come out, and I have laid out a huge spread because I would have cooked several things, and uh, we'd go through them, and he'd he'd taste them with me, and we'd kind of talk about whether it needed any changes, and Mm -hmm. it was a lot of fun.
0: Would you categorize your husband as a foodie, or is he just there as your support system?
1: No, he's just a great appreciator of food at this point. <laughs> uh,
0: so are people planning Hamilton dinner parties?
1: Using your book? They are, in fact. Um, and I heard about one through a, a lovely coincidence, which was that the National Press Club did a Hamilton cookbook dinner in February, And they did a multi-course meal with wines in every course and a sommelier who talked about the wine and I talked about the food. And there was a group of people there who were from a cookbook club and they are doing a Hamilton uh, cookbook dinner. So I was delighted to talk to them about what they might uh, choose for their dinner party.
0: So uh, I didn't find any other Hamilton cookbooks when I did a search online. But were there other cookbooks? I mean, I know Jefferson was into food and wine. Have, has anyone done a cookbook about Jefferson? Maybe this could get to be your next series, Laura.
1: Well, I know there are other cookbooks. And there certainly are books about uh, you know Mount Vernon that have recipes and books uh, that are recipes from that area. And from Jefferson's time, there's a new book now about Benjamin Franklin, who I gather was rather a foodie. Um, but, you know, this this cookbook actually takes recipes from a lot of different sources. And so, for example, the gingerbread is the only recipe that's really from the South, and that's because... Um, the Hamiltons were actually entertained quite a bit by George Washington George and Martha Washington, and they would have eaten uh, foods that the Washingtons liked.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, but typically they looked more toward uh, Europe and toward the Mid-Atlantic and towards the foods that um, Eliza Hamilton's family, which was Dutch in ancestry, that they would have enjoyed. So I tried to keep it uh, to foods that they would have eaten.
0: When you talk about the book to groups... What's the most frequent question that you receive? Uh,
1: the most frequent question I think is asking about how I got the recipes, and you know that was really through the process of looking mostly online. But then, to really get a sense, for example, I couldn't find any illustrations because books of 18th century cookbooks pretty much didn't have them. Uh, There were only a few, and those I actually had to go to the Library of Congress for. And the librarians there were amazing. And usually when I give talks, people are just, you know, the stories of touching an 18th century cookbook, it's just, it's a phenomenal experience. It it felt to me, uh, you know, like I really had history in my hand. To look at the grease stained page and know that that grease spot came from uh, somebody cooking in 17, 17- whenever. Okay.
0: Do they allow you to actually handle the books?
1: Uh, well, you need to have special, you, you get what's called a reader's card, and you have to uh, make an appointment with a librarian, and I had been going there for several days, uh, and the librarians were clear that I knew how to handle myself and that I was respectful of the materials before they actually let me, uh, you know, come come into the area where they do have older books and, you know, look through them myself with a librarian, of
0: course. hmm well, Laura, thank you so much for speaking with us today about, about your book. Again, it's called The Hamilton Cookbook, Cooking, Eating, and Entertaining in Hamilton's World. And I understand you do have a, a, an appearance coming up here in Washington. Do you want to tell us about that?
1: Sure. I'll actually be at Politics and Prose at their uh, original Connecticut Avenue store on June 10th, which is the member sale day, uh, at 1 p.m. And I will bring, uh, I will bring samples of the
0: gingerbread. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, so. everyone, I hope if you're in the Washington D.C. area on June 10th that you will stop into Politics and Prose to hear Laura talk a little bit more about uh, Hamilton's uh, food world. So, thank you for joining us again. I'm Charlene Gianetti, editor of Woman Around Town, and you've been listening to Wadcast.